This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Hi, and welcome back to Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and today's episode is called It Just Takes Time. And before we get started, I wanted to take a second to celebrate. First of all, we have hit our fourth episode. Woohoo! I know it's only four, but remember, today's uh, podcast is about taking simple steps and making time. And so I'm celebrating that I finally did take that step and put that first episode out there and you take another step and by, you know, step after step, you end up at your fourth episode. And so you got to celebrate those small successes. Um, I had a chance to speak to some of my students this week and I was super excited to hear about the time they spent with their family over break in Disney, went to New York City, Um, having an opportunity to contribute to a manuscript and all those good things. So it's just a reminder that we need to take a moment and pause in our busy lives and celebrate those small successes. Um, I think it's important to attend to those successes, to name them, and to share them with others. So I hope you'll take a moment, a second to celebrate. So Tell Me This is a podcast to think about belonging, think about connection and community and how in our everyday lives, whether it's working, playing, hanging with family, attending community meetings, being a part of our communities and schools, are we making those connections? Are we um, cultivating our own sense of belonging and also our neighbors and our community members' sense of belonging to our community? And so I want to ask you to tell me this. Did you practice or promote psychological safety this week? For those of you who don't remember what psychological safety is, I would point you to episode three where we talked about a really interesting Google study on high-performing teams where they found that promoting psychological safety, giving folks a voice in a group, and attending to the sort of emotion in the room were the two most important factors to distinguish high-performing teams from the other teams. So what I asked at the end of the last podcast was to try to practice one of those tenets from psychological safety. So I'm wondering, were you able to establish some sort of group norms this week that supported risk-taking in a non-judgmental space or meeting? Did you listen more than you talked? Um, And in the spirit of my grandmom Downey, did you listen during a lunch or some sort of meal? Did you really lean in and see the other person as they shared something with you? Got to remember, these are small, simple ways that we can make pretty significant changes uh, to create productive groups 
which um, those productive groups then lead to belonging and all sorts of good things start to happen. So uh, stay tuned. We are going to be talking more about this in just a moment. Well, welcome back. As, as I was saying, my grandmom did really lean in and listen all the time. She and my grandpa enacted that downy way really effortlessly. And I often wonder now as I reflect, how did they do that? Well, in today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at how we really can live and work this life of belonging. In today's episode, we're going to discuss three things. We're going to talk about these simple steps that I've been referring to in the last few episodes and acknowledging that the simple steps are often the most difficult. Um, I am definitely not an expert on belonging. I'm still reading and learning the literature. But what I do know is that enacting these simple and daily steps, this really requires hard work and determination and commitment. And so we're going to unpack this a little bit and try to figure out why. The second thing we're going to talk about today is this idea of, and it comes from the title of the episode, it just takes time. And what I mean by this is twofold, really. Over time, right, sometimes days, weeks, months to establish trust or create a workspace where individuals or groups feel like they can take risks or have the courage to engage. It also takes time in the sense of intentional time. You know, you got to carve out those moments. You've got to carve out in an hour-long meeting five minutes to check in, uh, 10 minutes to share successes. Um, on your calendar, you need to make time to connect with your neighbors that, that you're interested um, in connecting with and your kids and your friends and your spouse and your pets, whomever it is, you've got to be intentional just as you are with everything else. And if we don't do both, if we don't take time and make time we cannot grow and move forward. That's really true, I guess, with anything, but particularly with respect to belonging. The last thing we're going to talk about today is comfort in the discomfort. And if you've listened to any of these episodes, you know I love a good paradox. So this idea of not really, in, not really living an either-or kind of life, really living an and-both um, getting okay and almost embracing the dissonance in two seemingly conflicting ideas. I love unpacking and talking about this, the courage and vulnerability, listening to learn, being a novice and an expert, a teacher and a student. And this is a big one and one maybe we'll get into later. Belonging everywhere and nowhere. That's true belonging. And that's Maya Angelou from Letters to My Daughter. If you're looking for a good read, I would highly recommend that one. So in our episode today, as we always do, we will explore these three lessons through storytelling, a brief uh, research recap where we will discuss the transformative paradigm, one of my favorites, and a wrap-up and a training tip suggestion for the upcoming week. So thanks for joining us, and I'm looking forward to our discussion, and I, I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, we're back. Thanks so much for sticking around. And as I mentioned, we'll be talking about simple steps and why they're so difficult. It just takes time and finding comfort in the, the discomfort. 
And as always, um, I would like to share with you a a short story. And now I know this story usually has a memory of my grandmother, but I'm going to change it up a little today as as my family and I had the delightful chance to go and see Doolittle starring Robert Downey Jr. and a host of other great actors playing the animal voices. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. This isn't a movie review, so um, and there won't be any spoilers, so don't worry about spoiler alerts, but I definitely recommend it, particularly for the family. So for people who don't know, um, the story is about Dr. Doolittle, John Doolittle, and it's based on books written by Hugh Lofting, and he actually wrote these books between 1914 and 1918, so World War II, when he was serving in the British Army. And I did a quick Google search because I really didn't know anything about this author. And it said that he wrote the books in part because the daily news during the war was either too distressing or too dull. So he thought, huh, storytelling. Imagine that. I guess he was on to something. So this book features Dr. Doolittle, a physician who talks to the animals he treats. And the animals actually talk back to him. There's a longer story in the movie about relationships and some adventures, but remember, um, there aren't any spoilers, so I don't want to give anything away in case you go to see it. Interestingly enough, in his travels, Dr. Doolittle, I guess, sort of adopts, I'm not sure that's the word he would use, but he's definitely clear that it's not a capture, um, several animals who live and work with him at his estate, so when he returns from his adventures, so it's an estate slash, um, I don't know, physician's office slash hospital for animals. These include these animals include a gorilla with low confidence and a strong sense of fear, a polar bear who's always cold. Picture this polar bear, polar bear sitting in, in front of a warm fire, a duck with a wooden leg who helps the doctor do a little with surgeries, but somehow always hands him the wrong tool during surgery. For some reason, he likes to hand him a stalk of celery all the time. A dog who wears glasses, a tiger believes he's not good enough. Sounds like he has a lot of um, mom problems. And that's what the movie says anyway. And a human boy who loves and defends animals, but lives in a family of hunters. So their vocation were to be hunters and gatherers. These characters, of course, are called to action and go on a crazy and very sweet and funny adventure. I share this story not to give a spoiler, but to share that towards the end of the movie, someone asked Dr. Doolittle how he could possibly live with all these strange and different creatures. His simple reply, we just belong together. Tell me this, how do they just belong? How do a bunch of animals who don't speak each other's language, who don't look like each other, who are perhaps predators in a wild situation, and certainly Dr. Doolittle, who couldn't obviously communicate with them, or at least hadn't been able to communicate, how is it that he can say, we just belong? Well, literally, and this is part of the you know interesting part of the story, is Dr. Doolittle learns their language. It's actually pretty funny. Imagine Robert Downey Jr. sitting at a table with a chessboard with a gorilla on the other side, and they're playing um, chess in the gorilla's language. So you can imagine lots of chess pounding and noise. So he literally learns their language. He also takes time to listen. He doesn't make assumptions about the craziness or seemingly dangerous animal. So if an animal is 
growling at you or or pawing at you. Um, he's not automatically fearful and thinking the animal is bad. Dr. Doodle is interested in understanding the why. What is happening and why is it happening? And Dr. Doolittle also reminds us to see each animal and human being and value their contribution, oddities and all. I was watching one of those final scenes and was just struck by that message it sent to the audience. Or maybe just me. I hope it was the audience, but I don't know. This podcast and this idea has been on my mind, so maybe it just spoke to me at that moment. In spite of our differences, we can and need to learn to connect pay attention, and take the time to find, see, listen, and pay attention to our colleagues, friends, teachers, leaders, kids, and maybe even our pets. So tell me this, in our 24-7 busy lives where we have calendars on our devices, reminders to be at certain places at certain times, and lots of quick and easy ways to connect with just about anyone, anywhere. How is it that we still feel like we do not have enough time, and, as we discussed in episode one, we feel lonelier and more isolated? How do we invent time to attend to our community, our families, our colleagues, so that we feel like we just belong? How can we make it seem so effortless? When we return in a moment, we will circle back to this story and try to talk a little bit about those lessons that I mentioned earlier in the episode. So stay tuned. All right, well, welcome back. So as we get into these three sort of lessons for the episode, try to keep in mind this um, this clan or group of Dr. Doolittle's community and these very different, um, at least observably different animals, um, picture gorillas, polar bears, ostriches, dragonflies, mice, flying squirrels, really different, diverse group of characters. It wouldn't be such a leap to imagine a similar diverse group among a community of human beings. So as I was saying before, simple steps are sometimes the most difficult. If you Google simple steps or something along those lines, and I actually did it today, you're going to find so many hits on things like three simple steps to making difficult decisions, 10 steps to writing a book, don't we wish, five simple steps to losing weight, and the list goes on and on. How is it that there are so many books, articles, presentations, YouTube videos on these simple steps, but we still struggle with these very things, writing books, losing weight, making decisions, getting into relationships, whatever it is. Why are these things so hard? Now, I'm guessing neurologically, physiologically, or some other science has an explanation but here's mine, and it's only based on a sample of one, my own experiences. The acronym for these explanations, brace for it because it's not very good, it's UNIT, U-N-I-T. I know, I know, if you are a fan of Brene Brown, you're thinking hers are so much better. And trust me, I know I'm gonna work on them, but that's the first one that came to mind when I wrote these down. 
So the first one is the you, and it stands for unaware. You have no idea that what you might do could actually lead to something else. You just can't see or predict the effect, the outcome, the result that that simple step might have, so you don't do it. The second one, no effect. And this works in two ways. So the first one, remember, was unaware, this no effect. And what I'm talking about here is that it actually might mean that this current sort of less optimal thing that you're still doing You just don't think it matters with respect to the external or the internal for that matter. So in other words, if you're walking into a meeting, keeping your head down, getting your notebook out or getting your computer out and just getting to business and starting the meeting, you aren't understanding that there is an effect to that behavior, that decision you've made to manage a meeting or to facilitate a meeting. You're assuming that there's no effect. Because it's not like you're doing something overtly, and I'm using air quotes, bad, so you don't think there is effect. The other part of this for no effect is maybe you have an attitude of how can a little step like wearing a name tag in an unfamiliar setting or using a microphone when I can project just fine really matter? Again, It's not an awareness thing here. You just don't believe that there will be any effect. So that's U and N, unaware and no effect. The I in unit is impatient. And boy, am I ever. We all want results. And we don't just want results. We want them, well, yesterday. And we need proof. And it's usually in some form of quantitative data. We just can't trust the process. We can't believe or have faith that something good might come out of that action. And if we don't see it in the numbers, we don't believe it's so. The last one in unit, the T, too busy. I was just talking to some students this morning. We were talking about prioritizing different things and how it's so easy to make a to-do list. And oftentimes, you know, I prioritize my to-do list, whether right or wrong, those sort of immediate needs or sort of putting out the fires go at the top of the list. So it's possible that these seemingly less important or things that we think might have no effect or things where we haven't seen results in patients, or things where we don't think we even have a clue what impact it might have, unaware, they fall to the bottom of the list, and they never get attended to. So being unaware, believing there's no effect, being impatient, and being too busy, UNIT, I know, I'm sorry about the acronym, This is my explanation for why the simple steps are often so difficult. Now, our second lesson or thought for the day was this idea of making time, being patient, and being intentional. I know I keep hammering on time, and I'm sorry, but to me, this could be the simple step that just gets ignored for the reasons we discussed. We need patience. But we also need to pay attention and go back to the earlier episodes where I shared 
my own personal skills for data collection and analysis. You remember that story when I walk into a room and I sort of scan it and figure out what I need to do to fit in? <coughs> we need to try a little bit of this. When you take a simple step, there may be an immediate reaction, but it might be different than what you expected. Do not assume. Also, collect different kinds of data. There may be an there may not be an increase or decrease in some quantifiable obvious member measure, sorry. But the way in which someone experienced or heard something might make all the difference and start the lay the groundwork for future encounters or moments where they feel or cultivate belonging. Think about the precursors to this longer term idea of belonging. Having patience being able to wait and trust the process. These just take longer. Things like trust and safety and value and being seen. These are long term. And sometimes you have to think about how your simple steps can be enacted to contribute to that long term. The other part of this, intentional. Again, just as you would for your work, for your students, for your family, Make time. The last thing I'll say about making time, stop being so outcome and solutions oriented and just trust the process. The other part about intention, how are you using your time? Remember last week when we said that we all need a goal and a training plan? Well, this is true for this. To create time and foster belonging requires, are you tired of me saying it? Intentionality. Think about your work your family, your friends, your weekend plans? How do you move through these events? How do you manage to get from a birthday party to a community engagement, to do your homework, to check on that presentation, to work on a manuscript, to clean the house, to do the grocery shopping? How do you manage to do all of that? With to-do lists, calendars, goal setting, conversations and plans, how will you do it? So tell me this. What's on your to-do list for cultivating belonging in your family, with your colleagues? What is the first task? Let's get to it. The last lesson that I wanted to talk about in this today's episode of Tell Me This is comfort in the discomfort. So what have we talked about today so far? We've talked about the simple steps being difficult, and now we have our unit acronym to help us understand why. You guys know if you've been listening listening to even a couple of these other episodes that I've put out that time matters to me, that we need to be intentional. I keep saying that over and over again. And this other one is starting to creep up, this comfort in the discomfort. Dr. Doolittle must have looked quite odd and out of place with his crew of animals as his staff, but they were beloved and loved to help others. His colleagues actually secretly wanted to be more like him and understand how he did it. I actually think they wanted to be part of the community, but just couldn't admit it. We all have expectations and assumptions. We have ideas about how something should be or how it should go. This misalignment of expectations creates tensions within ourselves, among our groups, in our communities, with our families, 
It just goes on and on and on. This misalignment of expectations. We really need to learn to hold different views. And I don't mean change your view. I mean, we need to be able to hold conflicting views. We need to be able to hold different truths, multiple perspectives, different sets of assumptions, different plans in our hand at the same time. We need to get comfortable with disagreement, with different paths. Remember, misalignment of expectations partly come out of our preconceived idea of our path. So what if you could hold multiple paths, different ideas? It's okay. It doesn't mean your original idea or your idea is less important. It's just different. Hold on to that for a second. This isn't hierarchy here. This isn't comparing better or worse, good or bad, right or wrong. It's just different. Real quick example. So let's take parenting. And I know not everybody's a parent. So just imagine if you work in a school with students, if you go to church and you see kids, if you have nieces and nephews, neighbors, um, whatever it looks like. I'm hoping this will have some universal appeal. We'll come back to this topic hopefully later on another episode as I think it's important to think about being with parents or working with par- working with um, uh, kids or being a mentor with, with young people. So the example is our oldest, I think I've mentioned him, the wiggly one, was asked to light the candles at church this week. Oh my goodness. He was like over the moon, excited. He completely like jumped out of the seat. I told him not to run down the aisle, but you know, he walked quickly, I guess. And I was super delighted for him. Don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, when you see a young person and especially your kids excitement, you can't help but get excited. But remember, I'm still a work in progress. So my adult tendencies, I'm in a church, right? So my adult tendencies start to flare up. I was worried about him doing it right, whatever that means, right? Doing it without fanfare. Um, It just was making me stressed. So as he proceeded to light that last candle, and it's a difficult one. In previous weeks, we've had adults who who have struggled. So imagine it's a pretty large uh, candle holder, like a cylindrical shape, Um, not too tall, sort of medium size. It's big and they always put this really small candle inside of it. So unless you get that candle stick that you use to light it perfectly above it and centered and and the wicks have to be standing straight up, it can be tricky to use. So he used the candle lighting stick and tried to light it. No luck. Not that surprising. So I remember I'm sitting in the pew just hoping that he's going to get it done without any fanfare, quietly. He then continued to try. And finally, he proceeded to take the candlestick. Remember, it has one of those little snuffing things. I don't even know what it's called on the back of it, sort of bell-shaped. He took the candle lighting stick and he turned it around so the snuffing, the bell-shaped snuffing thing on the lighting stick was like up above the wick, but somehow the light of the candlestick was also right there, 
right? His arms were like bending in an odd sort of way, almost like he was reaching over himself to get to it. And of course, I was getting more nervous because now we're making fanfare. People are are chuckling and cheering for him sort of quietly. But sure enough, he bent that arm one more time. It lit. And can I just tell you, so many folks and people after the service commented on how impressed they were that he was able to do it because it was a difficult one. Me, well, remember my adult tendencies? I was a bit stressed. Why? Because it wasn't what the way I thought he should do it. It was taking too long. He was drawing too much attention. Is that a misalignment of expectations? You better believe it. And I began to stress. But then I remembered paradox. See my kiddos. See his persistence. See his creativity. And most importantly, see his pride and excitement just after he lit that thing. My adult tendencies didn't disappear, but that little step to augment did augment my perspective and made a huge difference. I was proud, he was proud and happy, and that's that. Hold the paradox, embrace the paradox. It might just make for a great experience. We'll be right back. All right. Thanks for coming back to the episode of Tell Me This. It just takes time. And we just finished talking about why simple steps are sometimes difficult, making time both in sort of having patience for outcomes and being intentional and finding comfort in the discomfort. I wanted to spend a few minutes on our research recap. I know there's a lot in this episode. It's a little longer than usual, so I hope you'll hang in there. Today, we're talking about transformative methods. What does a transformative lens bring to credible evidence and mixed method evaluation? This is Donna Merton, 2013, in case you're interested. I know that's a mouthful. Um, trust me, it, it'll have some universal appeal, appeal, at least I hope. So it's an article that speaks specifically about how researchers should or could conduct research, particularly a program evaluation with more of a social justice lens. I would suggest, however, that like the Community Engaged Scholarship article we talked about a couple of episodes ago, uh, these ideas have application in all sorts of contexts. So I'll just give you sort of the, the high points of the article. I really love Donna Merton's work. Um, she's at, uh, or used to be at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., and she's been doing work around transformative methods for a while. This is really her signature contribution to the research area. So if, if you just Google her, there's lots of cool video interviews, and she's written lots of articles and textbooks if you have interest um, in this researcher. So what's the key sort of tenant of this transformative lens, if you will? So it's this idea, it's a methodology or a paradigm that prioritizes social justice and human, human rights, that she contends that this eye towards social justice really should be in every aspects of every aspect of research or evaluation that you might do. So just as, as an example, you know, when you're creating the purpose of your research, when you're thinking about research questions, you really should be checking in with the community. Um, if you've ever heard this idea of 
trying to avoid doing research on a, a, a group of participants, but with them, that's really what she's speaking to. It really emerged from this concern about the inclusion of marginalized communities and, and whether or not their voices were being heard. And it does tend to focus and integrate issues of power, addressing inequities, examining researcher positionality, so our own position and place uh, with power with respect to the community um, with whom we're trying to work. The key features, as I said, um, are on human rights and social justice, being really aware as a researcher about the power and cultural differences. And she suggests that it's not just knowing that there are possible differences, but digging in to identify the cultural norms, the practices, the beliefs. So really describing and measuring and understanding at more of a gut level what those differences are. And when she talks about this from a methodological standpoint, she's arguing that we shouldn't just be re relying on numbers, so sort of quantitative measures, but we really should be doing things to get at lived experiences, which would um, come in the form of more qualitative, right? So for our non-research folks out there, this really is an emphasis on conversation, right? Remember, we've been talking about listening to learn and leaning in and taking time. Well, I'm not asking the person that I'm speaking with in a, in a meeting to take a survey or to look at a piece of data in a, in a number form, you know. It's really having a conversation. And so she's arguing for methods that incorporate those voices and you use things like focus groups and interviews to do that kind of work. In terms of why she thinks a transformative lens is important, I mean, in addition to the, the sort of moral side of focusing on human rights, she also suggests that, you know, this idea of one reality, and, and I don't want to go into sort of these different paradigms that are out there, but this notion that there's one reality, it, it, she doesn't really buy into that. And she suggests even if it, there was one, it's probably imperfect. And so she really believes that we need to identify the different versions of reality, or some people would suggest that it's not just different versions, but perhaps we each have a part of the truth and we need to bring those sort of versions and portions together to create a reality, right? It's almost like uh, co-constructing this reality. And we need to interrogate uh, where these truths are coming from, what are their origins, and examine those consequences, which helps to give us some history probably around how the power dynamics emerged, how the hierarchy or the system looks uh, the way it does look. Now, in terms of how the researcher engages with the community, <clears throat> she provides some pretty specific uh, steps for researchers to carry out to, to use or implement this transformative uh, methodology, and that is the researchers really need to enact or cultivate relationships with the stakeholders and with the community. So again, not just sort of doing the research from your desk in your office in your organization, but really going out into the community. <coughs> these researchers need to build these relationships in cultural appro culturally appropriate ways, acknowledge the power, and support inclusion. And this isn't easy. The, this might require 
particular skills and facilitation. This might require difficult conversations. This might require, hmm, time. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to put it in there. You know, oftentimes, and I've seen this in some work I've done around service learning, and it's certainly in the literature, the reality is that community members, participants in research, stakeholders are super suspicious of researchers. It's like they're, I don't know, these red flags or your antenna go up, whatever your metaphor is, when researchers arrive. And so they automatically feel defensive, usually for justifiably because of experiences they've had. And so it's so important to build these relationships, to bring the community into the research process. In fact, some communities, I mean, if I think if the researcher's fortunate, some communities have actually done their own work around statements on how to sort of engage in these conversations. Sometimes there are community boards or research boards that will help you to manage these needs. Um, I don't know how often that happens, but I have heard it tell in some instances. Again, the idea methodologically is to use culturally appropriate methods, which probably includes some sort of focus group, observation, or interview. Um, You know, it needs to capture whatever you're measuring, whatever you're trying to understand in that research process. You really have to capture the cultural complexity um, and the sort of appropriate differences among the cultural groups. The other thing that she suggests, what I which which I really love, <coughs> is to sort of do the findings iteratively, and that means to use the findings, take them into the community, and make sort of small, short changes and check in with the community. So instead of sort of holding back all of the data that you have and sort of waiting till the end to make sort of a splash, keep them involved in the process. <coughs> So hopefully you can see in this discussion of transformative methods that even some of the, you know, the shorter items or um, just features of this methodology, I was trying to think of a good word for it, features, elements, attributes of this methodology probably have application in lots of different spaces in our worlds. Um, Even just having a meeting, um, if you're involved with an organization that does work in the community, if your organization works across, you know, uh, working groups or units within the organization. So if finance has to work with contracts, who has to work with the IT team, you could see where having these conversations, creating relationships, creating an environment of inclusivity really listening to learn and collecting a a myriad sets of data so that you can really get a sense of the complexities of these relationships um, really would come in handy. And I've been in our town a part of some community meetings, whether it's for the schools or for the community in general, where thinking about the approach I'm going to take as I enter this space and talk with these, these folks having this sort of social justice approach, social justice lens, really matters. And I think it, it does make a difference, acknowledging your privilege, acknowledging your power, and just being, you know, really respectful and walking carefully um, and respectfully into these circles 
can make all the difference and really can make the difference between whether someone, as I said earlier, is skeptical about you, is suspicious as you walk into a room, or are they open and willing to hear what you have to say? So even if you're not a researcher, even if you're not a methodologist or a student taking these research methods courses, I think this transformative lens has application in a variety of settings. And so um, that's the recap of our research for today. Again, it's Donna Merton, and it's what does a transformative lens bring to credible evidence in mixed method evaluation. If you're interested, I highly recommend you take a look at it. So we will be right back to wrap it all up. All right. Thanks for hanging out and listening to episode four of Tell Me This. It just takes time. We just finished our research recap with Donna Merton and the transformative lens. We've been talking about why these daggone simple steps are so difficult, thinking about how we we need to take time and be intentional with our time and learn to find comfort in the discomfort, whether it's when your wiggly son goes up to light the candle and does it in sort of a way that you hadn't expected, just being able to sit in that space and and sort of hold both the the adult tendencies to want to conform with the enthusiasm of a kid or remembering that you're you can be both a novice in and an expert and it's okay to admit both but that's really what we've been talking about today so i know it's again it's been a little bit longer but i thought that it was important and i hope you've enjoyed it so um As we conclude today, um, and in your comings and goings, try to take a simple step. Identify one step, something maybe we mentioned in the podcast or maybe in a previous episode. We talked about naming a value, listening to learn, sharing a meal with someone, being attentive or attending to someone during a meal, wearing a name tag, celebrating individual differences, even when they are different than your own ideas, or maybe you really disagree. Whatever the step, identify it, name it, write it down somewhere, or better yet, tell someone. Make yourself accountable and make a plan. What will you do for the next three days that will help to strengthen and build your capacity for belonging? We need to do this work just as you would commit time to practicing, I don't know, fill in the blank, a piano, dancing, acting, running, swimming, Whatever your hobby, your talent, your joy, we practice it and we make a plan. We make long to-do lists and calendars and schedules. We have to practice acts of connection, community, and belonging. Tell me this. What will you do this week to cultivate belonging? What will you practice? My grandmother practiced acts of belonging every day. And I wish she were still around so I could ask her about her training plan and regiment. What exercises did she get to do and and how did she achieve them and what did they look like? I can only speculate, but I suspect that she did the work. She did practice a little bit every day and it made all the difference in and for me. I'm Carrie Borkowski and you've been listening to Tell Me This. Thanks so much for joining me today. Remember that I'm a work in progress and we are a work in progress. Don't ever be afraid to take 
the first and simple step. And with a little practice, we can and we will all feel and promote belonging. And one last request. On a future episode, I'm planning to interrogate the role and story behind manners. Words like yes, ma'am, and no, sir. I'm reading and reviewing how these words do and do not contribute to community and belonging. I'd love to hear your own experiences with manners. Did you use them? Did your parents make you use them? Did you use them and stopped as an adult? What do you do as a parent? How do you feel if if someone uses or doesn't use manners? What is that what kind of space and feelings do does do manners create when you're in a in a workplace or in a social setting or a family gathering? I have plenty to share, but would love to get your own insights on the role, the purpose, and the frequency of use of manners in your life and the places that you wander. If you have a moment and have an idea or something you want to share, please email me at Carrie Borkowski, that's C-A-R-E-Y-B-O-R-K-O-S-K-I at gmail.com or send me a tweet at tell me the, at the Tell Me This pod. Thanks. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.